Chapter number four. All right. The book of Zechariah is a wonderful book. And Zechariah was a man of God, a preacher. And God used him to encourage the, uh, uh, the governor, the mayor, the guy in charge there of uh, Jerusalem, and his name was Zerubbabel. And so we'll read together verses 1 to 10. Okay, Zechariah 4, 1 to 10. Ready? Let's read. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, Thou shalt become a flame, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things, for they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we ask now that you speak to our hearts and encourage us. Zerubbabel needed encouragement, and we do too oftentimes. And so we thank you for this day and thank you that we can be here in this place. You are here in our presence and where even two or three are gathered and we're certainly more than that. So Lord, we do pray you talk to us, speak to our hearts and encourage us in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I want to talk about essentially this phrase here, but I'll go back and I'll give you the context, but verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? 
And we have here uh, really a very wonderful passage. Um, Zerubbabel was trying to rebuild the temple. He was trying to get that done. He was trying to watch over the city and everything. He was sort of the guy in charge. And he was getting thwarted in his efforts to, to get things back. Remember the Israelites there, they've been from Jerusalem anyhow, been carried off in a 70 years captivity. And Jerusalem, which had been a magnificent city, was all destroyed, burned with fire. The temple was, you know, just raided of all of its, its possessions. And the walls were all destroyed. And there were just a, a, a horrible mess. This Saturday is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. 20 years ago that those planes came crashing in. And the pictures of devastation of the city of uh, uh, New York in the Manhattan area. Uh, dust was everywhere. Rubble and garbage and fire and devastation. People were walking around covered in, in dust, dazed, not quite sure what to do. And that sort of is an idea of what happened to Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar finally said, that's it. That's the end, and he was used of God to destroy the city. And so, after 70 years, God allowed them to go back and to rebuild. Easier said than done. Tremendous amount of work required, a lot, lot of problems. And Zerubbabel was trying to get the job done, and he was discouraged. And so God wanted to encourage Zerubbabel, and so he used a preacher to do it. Hooray for preachers! And so what God did was he sent an angel and gave a vision to Zechariah, the preacher, the prophet, of this elaborate candle stand and oil from two living olive trees. And Zechariah had never seen anything like this before. And the power for the candlesticks was coming from the oil provided by the living olive trees. And so the idea of that was power for building was going to come from God. I think when it says, not, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, in verse 6, I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. Um, I do believe that God perfects strength out of weakness. There are times when God calls upon us to be weak. And that's just the way it goes. There are times when we get physically sick, physically weak. There's times we get emotionally weak spiritually weak and it's out of that weakness that God brings about strength his strength second uh, Corinthians chapter 12 Paul talked about having a thorn in the flesh some kind of miserable thing that he was called upon to have to live with and uh, he didn't want it because it would hold him back he thought from being able to serve the Lord better but God says no 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 you don't understand I want that there because my power is perfected in I'm just paraphrasing. The white's paraphrase, right? But verse 6, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And we have to remember that it's the same principle today. God's work done in man's power is not going to amount to very much. God's work has to be done God's way in God's power. And sometimes it involves weakness. As, uh, as, as we know. Um, 
momentous obstacles would become nothing before God's power. That's the idea here in verse 7. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. Um, this power has to be God's, God alone. And in verse 7 also it says, He shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. And so the headstone is the cornerstone of the building. Grace, grace, that same grace that, uh, that completed it will preserve it. And so we have this reiteration here of uh, the promise, so Zerubbabel would not miss it um, here in verse number 9. So verse number 10, uh, for who hath despised the day of small things? Now we have to remember that the first temple that Solomon built was incredibly grand and glorious, and it could be seen glittering in the sun miles away. It was amazing. Uh, this second temple was squatty compared to that first temple. And there were actually people still alive who saw the second temple. And uh, they were not impressed. They had been around, they were youngsters or something, but they had been around in the first temple. Now the second temple comes along and they say, oh, it was better in the good old days. Funny how we, we always talk about the good old days. You know, these days right now are somebody's good old days. <laughs> you know, in years to come, these will be their good old days. <laughs> and we look upon them and we say, wow, uh, COVID diseases and financial problems and political, and now look, the Taliban's taken over and this and that. And, you know, we say, ah, we preferred it years ago. Now we're always talking that way, I suppose. But here we have the second temple. Um, <clears throat> in Ezra chapter 3 and Haggai chapter 2, we know that uh, uh, some of those people from the original deportation ended up back after 70 years. And they're quite old, but they were back there and they were looking at this second temple and they snubbed it. They said, that, that's nothing. That's nothing. And so this is why we have in verse 10, who hath despised the day of small things? He's talking about the comparison of the two temples. The second temple was not going to be anything like the first temple with all its pillars and grandiose everything. This was going to be small and plain Jane. However, um, The eyes of men looked with scorn upon this second temple, but the eyes of God looked upon it with favor because God was going to use this second temple in a way that the first temple was never used. And this second temple, with some renovation down the road, was the one that uh, Jesus walked into. Jesus never did that with the first temple, did he? You know, people today are often doing the, the same sort of thing. They reject the day of small things. They look at something small and they say, ah, that's nothing. And you know, the world seems to be that way. 
They scorn insignificant things. Uh, they don't care for the, the poorest. They care for the richest. They don't care for the weakest. They care for the strongest. They don't care for uh, the, the slowest. They care for the fastest. It makes me think of the Guinness Book of World Records. Okay? And uh, that book is all about the most beautiful and the, the strongest and the fastest and the wealthiest and the most grandiose, grandiose. <laughs> See, I hardly use that word, I can hardly say it. But uh, uh, our church and our Bible college will never end up in the Guinness Book of World Records. Okay? Maybe some other Bible college or institution might, I don't know. But I don't think we ever will because we're not on their list. And by the way, you will never find in uh, the Guinness Book of World Records. You'll never find that little Johnny got an A on his math test. You'll never find that because they're not interested in that. They're not interested in the day of small things. Sometimes we as Christians fall into this little trap as well. And I think it's a trap where we start comparing and start thinking, oh, oh, oh. And we sort of do that sort of thing in <clears throat> various different ways, I suppose. But uh, sometimes we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, well, who am I? Eh? At the end of the day, what can I do? What can I give? All I have are little things. My whole life is a little thing, we might say. But I believe God is interested in the little things. And I think we have that here in verse 10. The day of small things. Did you know that God is concerned about the number of hairs on your head? Matthew chapter 10, the Lord Jesus made this very clear, that God knows the number of hairs on your head at any given time. We get up in the morning and we run a brush or a comb through our hair and two or three, four, five or more hairs sometimes <laughs> come off there and into the brush. Well, a careful record of the number of hairs left is made note of in heaven. God writes that down somehow. He knows. All right. They used to have 123,205 hairs when they went to bed that night. Now there's three hairs less, so, and he makes that correction. He knows at any time. He said, well, that's a useless little bit. Not for a loving God. Not for a God who takes interest in small things. Also, you remember the sparrows of the air that not one of them falls to the earth without the Heavenly Father knowing about that. And uh, I saw in the news over in, what was a little town in England? Uh, forgot the name of the little town. Little town in England. One day everyone gets up in the morning and they find all these dead birds. And it was just recently. All these dead birds all over the, the place. And so some people are saying, did they get poisoned? Did someone go out at night and poison them? Like, how did these birds die? We don't know. God knows. But God sees even when one little bird falls to the ground. You see, for us, that's insignificant, right? And we're walking along. We step on an ant. We don't even know it. Well, that's... You, th you think of your worst day in life. <laughs> that's the ant. You know, you just stepped on the ant. <laughs> That's the worst thing, I suppose, that could happen. And that's his worst nightmare. And you gave it to him. So, God takes notice of that. 
God notices also the lilies of the field, according to Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. He knows all about the lilies of the field. So these are small little things, and they're insignificant uh, in terms of our lives. Unless God has called us to be, you know, a keeper of the lilies or something, and our whole life is wrapped around the lilies, but it's not. So they're insignificant little things to us, and yet God knows. He takes notice of all of these insignificant things. It's incredible. You use a microscope, and you go down into a, a very miniature world, don't you? You use a stronger microscope, and you can go down even further. I mean, we look at this little furry creature that runs across, and we say, ooh, a mouse. Well, God sees the mouse. God sees the hairs on the mouse. God sees the little flea clinging to the hairs of the mouse. God sees the little antennae and the little things that come off the legs of the flea. God sees the little, what do you call those things? Proto-something plasmas, <laughs> whatever they are, those tiny things that are on the, the hairs of the leg of the flea, which is on the, the hairs of the mouse, which just ran across our foot. God sees it all. He knows. God is a God who's concerned with little things. Now, when we start thinking about that, you know, all of a sudden we get encouraged. And life, even life can take on a new meaning. There are Christians that do have a struggle with self-image and feeling that uh, they're, you know, nothing, insignificant. Well, they may just be the exact person God is looking for. Someone who will get a good, honest look at themselves. Our lives are important to us, right? If you went up into an airplane high above Surrey, uh, you would see all the little uh, houses and tiny cars, and you might be able to see people. And if you went up even higher, you might see something like what's on the map there. You might not even be able to make out the houses. You could see maybe the, the large highways, you'd see the Fraser River, you're getting up pretty high there. What would that be, do you think? That'd be about 5,000 feet up. If you were in an airplane, about 5,000 feet, or maybe more than that. More. Jet planes, you know, the commercial ones, how high do they travel? 32,000 feet. Well, then it'd be quite a bit higher than that, wouldn't it? You wouldn't be able to see anyone. You know, you'd be lucky if you could make out big buildings. You'd be able to see some of the large rivers and things, lots of clouds in the way if you're up that high. But uh, all of a sudden now you can't see people. And each, each one of those people think that their lives are important, at least somewhat important. And you get up high enough and life almost looks meaningless. That's to us. God sees the whole thing, right? And God knows our lives are important so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And so what I'm trying to say is that uh, we, may, we may be insignificant. We may be small. Uh, we may be, um, uh, I wouldn't say useless, but we may be, well, let's just say insignificant, maybe, in the eyes of others. Our church, our people, our ministries, our college, others may look and may despise. But I do believe with all my heart in the day of small things. Now, let's take an example of this, and we'll go back to the book of Exodus, okay? 
Exodus chapter number 4. Well, we have the story here of Moses being called of God. Now remember that Moses today is probably the most significant um, person in, um, in uh, the Hebrew religion and amongst the Jews. They look at him, you know, as being the most significant. Uh, did I ever tell you the joke that Tommy Walker once told me? <laughs> and he said that in this, uh, this uh, school, years and years ago, the teacher in front of the, the children, all these different children, and said, who's the most uh, significant, important person in all of the world? And one little, little kid uh, raised his hand and said, the President of the United States. Uh, that's, a, that's a good guess, and that's an important person, but that's not the most important person in all of the world, all history of the world. Now, who do you think it could be? Another kid raised his hand. Christopher Columbus, he discovered, you know, the new world. Well, Christopher Columbus was an important man, but he wasn't the most important one. Uh, who else do you think? And uh, a couple of the kids had a couple different answers. Anyhow, this little Jewish boy is there, and he raises his hand. He says, Jesus Christ. And the teacher says, that's right. That's right. And she calls Reuben forward. Here, I got a little gift for you, Reuben. And uh, she had said, I'll give a dollar to whoever can you know, get the, uh, the right answer. And so... Reuben comes up and he receives his dollar, and uh, the teacher says, "That was that was a good good answer from you, uh, Reuben. I know that your family is Jewish. Uh, what what made you think that?" And the little boy looked at the teacher and said, "Well, the real answer is Moses, but business is business." <laughs> <laughs> Moses is uh, uh, being told of God about going back. And at one point, he was absolutely insignificant. He, you know, people despised him, hated him, you know, when he left Egypt and so on. He was just a distant memory for so many people because he'd been gone 40 years. He was an insignificant piece of dust. That's all he was. And yet God was interested in him. And so God is talking to Moses here and... Um, Verse 1, Moses answered and said, oh, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. What's another name for a rod? A stick. Just an old stick. That's what it was. Moses didn't get this handed down from him, you know, generation after generation, and it was covered in gold and had, you know, diamonds and rubies all encrusted in it. That's not what Moses was holding. He was holding a, an old stick that he snapped off of a, a tree. Maybe it was a dead tree or something, and he needed a stick. He was a shepherd, right? And so he maybe fashioned this thing. Maybe he whittled it a little bit, but he, it was his, his stick, his rod. And that's what he would use to help them with the shepherding business. And so that's what was in his hand. 
And so um, God asks, well, what's that in your hand? Well, that's nothing. That's just an old stick. And if I lose it, I could easily get another one. Well, what did God do? Verse 3, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. So the rod turned into a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. I guess he was afraid of snakes. A lot of people are. Maybe it was a scary one. And then the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. How do you think Moses felt if he just fled, if he just ran away from this, this you know, crazy big snake? So I don't think it was a little stick six inches long he was holding. I think it was a, a big thing, you know, six foot tall, maybe longer, this rod that was in his hand. And so that's how long the snake would have been, six, seven feet, something like that. And so... Uh, what you want me to grab that thing and so anyhow he does and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand what a trick huh? now a lot of kids if, if they could do that they'd, they'd take that stick to school wouldn't they <laughs> they'd show off to the other boys they'd chase the girls with this thing maybe chase some teachers with this thing good thing Moses wasn't a kid in school but the point is it was just an old stick but it took on new meaning when God got involved. There's something special about that stick now. And maybe for the rest of his life. Because remember, he had it when he went back to Egypt. He had it when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness, all those years. He still had this, this rod. I wonder what ever happened to that rod. That's a thought. Um, but with this rod, this insignificant, this day of small thing, he took that thing and he held it up over the Red Sea and God opened up the Red Sea. They got into the uh, wilderness and they're all thirsty and they're moaning, griping after Moses. And so uh, first time he spoke to the rock and the second time he took the rod and he did something what he wasn't supposed to do. He struck the rock. And, of course, water came all gushing out of that. But the point is, this insignificant stick that came out of the wilderness was something that uh, God used. I believe that all through the Bible, God's blessings are, are found on insignificant things. In Judges chapter 3, Ehud was the judge. And he was a left-handed guy, a southpaw. And he made himself a, a little knife. And with it, he was able to get victory because he found a new home for the knife. Does anyone know where he... <laughs> Stomach of who? Eglon. Yeah. No one has Eglon the fat. <laughs> Eglon the king. This guy, he, he was so huge. I mean, so huge that when Ehud put the knife in, it disappeared. He couldn't get it out either. I'm sure he tried. Put his foot up on Eglon's face and pulled. <laughs> Couldn't get it out. So he just left it there. It's there to this day, in fact. <laughs> also in Judges chapter 3, you get a guy named Shamgar. And he was going to give victory to uh, Israel. And what did he have in his hand? Ox an ox goat, which is just a, a stick with a, a sharpened end on it. And you, you know, the ox kicks you, well, you're going to point point the stick in the rear of the uh, the ox there. So he took this thing and he was used of God to slay 600 Philistines. 
And these weren't baby Philistines. These were grown men, trained battle guys with armor on. He killed them. In Judges chapter 4, there was a lady who uh, used a tent pin, just an insignificant thing like a tent pin and a, and a hammer. But where did she use it? To the temple of who? Starts with an S. Yeah, Cicero. Cicero. Yeah, some people thought he was a sissy for running away, but he was the captain of the uh, Canaanite army there. Um, Judges chapter 7, you have Gideon. And Gideon is now going to defeat 180,000 bad guys. And what, what kind of army did he end up with? 300. 300, yeah, 300. That would be enough to be like the water boys, you know, to fetch water maybe or to do a few little errands. But with the 300, you see, something very insignificant. God brought about incredible victory because the power is of God. Judges chapter 9, um, a guy named Abimelech, a real bad guy, and he's running away, trying to escape, and um, a woman with a piece of millstone. You know what a millstone is, right? Used to grind the, uh, the wheat, but sometimes these things over time they break or someone drops something on it and breaks. So she had a chunk of this thing and with a chunk of millstone she dropped that over the, the wall and she got a victory uh, over Abimelech. Judges 15, we got a guy named Samson and he's faced with a thousand Philistines. So he didn't have a machine gun, right? But he did have something. What do you have? Jawbone of an ass, the donkey. And I have in my office the uh, the jawbone of um, of a horse, which is very similar in size. So he took this thing, and with this insignificant thing that no one would give two hoots for, you know, you'd find bones all over the place. He took this, and he was able to slay a thousand. Baby Philistines, right? <laughs> a thousand grown, ugly, hairy, smelly, trained, vicious, bloodthirsty Philistines. A thousand of them. And it, it was God's victory there. You have in First Samuel chapter 17 uh, a teenager named David. And he picked up a stone. And with the stone, he was able to bring down the greatest Philistine warrior that ever lived. That stone sunk right deep into his forehead. I'm sure he never thought of that. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to the disciples, You feed them. <laughs> they said, What? Why, 200 anywhere. You know, bread is not enough to feed this monster crowd. Look at them all. There's at least there was 5,000 men, probably with 5,000 women and children that could have been 10, 12,000 people there that day. But there was a little boy, and the little boy had what? Five fish. Five loaves, two fish. Enough to feed a little boy. They weren't very big loaves. I remember hearing about some critic of the Bible saying, oh, that wasn't a miracle. They were just big loaves and big fish. <laughs> That's all it was. They were just big loaves and big fish. And so someone thought about that and said, okay, let's see now. If we, uh, if we take that figure of 5,000, 
I mean, what are they going to have? What are they going to eat that day with bread and fish? They're going to eat fish sandwiches. Yeah. So they uh, they figured out, you know, if every everyone had, you know, a little piece of bread and a couple of ounces of fish on there. Everyone had that. You know, they did the math, and they figured out that these. Uh, these loaves would have had to have been about the size of one of these church pews, five of them, and then the fish would have had these great big, you know, killer whale-sized things. And there's a little boy carrying all this. This is lunch. It was a small little thing, but God was pleased to use it. And in Acts chapter nine, there's a, a little Christian lady named Dorcas and her sewing kit her little sewing kit, and with that she was able to uh, to make clothes for dozens, maybe hundreds, we don't know, of poor people. But God is interested in those little things. The day of small things. Now, our Bible college enters now its ninth year. We've seen a lot of different stuff over the previous eight years. And our attendance has been up and our attendance has been down, but every year God has been faithful. And so we've just come through this past year of COVID and COVID's made us pull some hair out and scramble and wonder, well, what do we do now? We've never faced anything like COVID before. So we've come through that. God brought us through. So now we're entering into the ninth year of Bible college and uh, we don't have as many students as we would like. We have online students, we have part-time students, and we have full-time students. And I think when you add them all together, Pastor Silver, what do we come up with? Eight? Something like that? So, yeah, eight. eight. So here we are, after having completed eight years, we're going to our ninth year as a Bible college, we have eight students. And some people say, ah, the day of small things, close it down, close it down. Some people would say that. Well, we don't think it's time to close it down because God hasn't told us to close it down. God has still put the desire on people's hearts for Bible college training. Be it part-time, full-time, online, God has still put the desire there. God still kept all the doors open. God has something in mind that we don't know yet. But God knows what he's doing and he makes no mistakes. We don't know, but tomorrow, next week, next month, God may bring in a few more students. We don't know. We may also find out that Something's going to happen with uh, COVID regulations as of uh, Sunday the 13th. There's going to be some new stuff happening, and maybe some more stuff will happen after that. And we'll say, well, praise the Lord, we don't have more students. Because if we did, we would have some other big hiccup we'd have to deal with. So we just don't know, do we? But we know that we are in the palm of God's hand, and he is going to lead us according to his will. God doesn't require big Bible colleges with big student bodies and millions of dollars in order to get things done. He doesn't require that. We've seen all through the Bible, God is able to take little things and to do great miracles with it. And so, you know, God said to Moses, what is that in thine hand? So, God says to us, what is that in thine hand? Well, I don't know, it's not much, it's, it's you know, this or that. Someone says, well, i got a set of car keys. Praise the Lord. You use it then as a bus ministry for the Lord or to run errands for the Lord or, you know, do something for God. You use it. What is that in thine hand? Well, it's not much. It's just a cell phone. 
Well, and use it to encourage people and invite people to church. And what is that in thine hand? It's nothing, it's just a letter. Gonna mail mail off a letter. Okay, great. Put a gospel tract in there. You know, what is that in thine hand? Well, I don't have anything. Empty hands. Okay, then why don't you put your hands together and become a prayer warrior? How about that? And pray and ask God to do some some impressive things. You know, it doesn't take much as as long as we put it in God's hands. Little as much when God is in it. Um, a piece of driftwood floating around in the water, well, that's nothing. Um, a little steam kettle, you know, that's whistling, that's nothing. Uh, oh, there's a, an apple tree and some of the fruit fell to the ground. Well, that's nothing. See, we despise these. We say, that's nothing. That's a small thing. That's meaningless. And yet, if it wasn't for that piece of floating driftwood, Christopher Columbus's crew would have mutinied on him, killed him, thrown him overboard, and turned around and tried to, you know, go back to Spain. It was that piece of floating driftwood that told them, land is near. The whistling steam kettle that we say, oh, that's nothing. You all have heard a steam kettle whistle, haven't you? Yeah, most of us. How about in the movies? <laughs> well, anyhow, the, the steam kettle is what got James Watt thinking. And he's the guy that invented steam engine. And that began the Industrial Revolution back in the 1700s. Great big, massive um, uh, manufacturing plants all powered by these big steam-operated behemoths. <laughs> Huge big things. A dropping apple is what got Isaac Newton thinking about the laws of gravity. So what is that in thine hand? Whatever it is, use it for God's glory. I don't know why God is leading us the way he's leading us, but I know he makes no mistakes. So let us not be like some of the the old Jews that came and saw the second temple and despised the day of small things. Let's not make that mistake, shall we? Because God is alive and well and in our midst, and God knows exactly what he's doing. So he's using the Bible college and putting it together the way he sees fit. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we do once again uh, recognize that you are well in control and that you know things we don't. And for reasons that at this point are only known to you, you've allowed things to go a certain way for our Bible college. But we praise you, Father. We're still alive. Our head is still above water. And hallelujah. And you're still in the midst here. We, we know. We feel your presence. And we ask you, dear Father, to use our Bible college in a very unique and precious and special way and build and guide as you see fit, Father and protect us. Please bless this day and all that is said and done in the service tonight for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.